Hello everyone, this is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and thank you so much for joining us again. Today we have another phenomenal guest with us, Miss Kate Swafer. See, Kate is the CEO and co-founder of Dementia Alliance International. She's also a humanitarian and an award-winning campaigner for the rights of people with dementia and older persons in Australia and globally. See, this woman is just simply amazing. And, and through this conversation, we're going to be talking about strategies that you can use to overcome hurdles and challenges in your life that just may seem unsurmountable. She's going to share her personal story with how she has lived through and with dementia and letting you know that just because something horrible happens to you, it doesn't have to define who you are. And Again, I can't say enough about this magnificent, phenomenal woman who's done so much fighting for dementia across this world. And in fact, she actually spent a fair amount of time at the World Health Organization fighting for rights at that level as well. And so you're going to absolutely love this conversation. But as always, before we get started, please feel free to put yourself in the raffle for a free one hour coaching session. Um, we offer one a month and all you have to do is comment under this video on YouTube, LinkedIn, or even Facebook, asking a question about leadership and leaving the hashtag V-T-H-E-A-T show, S-H-O-W. That's all you have to do and you'll be entered in to win a free coaching session with this worth $250. But Let's go on and get ready for this interview. See you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and thank you so much for joining us here again today. Today, I have again with a new friend of mine, and I'd like to introduce Miss Kate. How are you doing, madam? I'm very well, thank you, Alex, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, I thank you because you've been up since five o'clock your time because you are in Australia and I am here in DC. So I, you got up early to get ready for this. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad habit I have. <laughs> well, you, 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 th thank you so much for being interested in, in sharing um sharing through, via this podcast and in this show. And I, I'd love to just maybe start our conversation off with um, Dementia Alliance International. Um, why did you start this organization? Okay, so Dementia Alliance International uh, launched on the 1st of January 2014. So coming up for seven and a half years ago, and it was founded by... Uh, myself and seven other people from three different countries, America, Canada, and me in Australia, um, all living with a diagnosis of dementia um, and all tired of there being no services and no support for us, lots of support for everybody else, but very little support for us. So we decided to set up our own group and provide our own support. So that's kind of how it started. Um, I, I've learned sometime afterwards that I was the Aussie with the funny accent. I didn't realise I had a funny accent. And they didn't tell me that at the time, but we'd met online, a number of us, and then a large group of people with dementia met at a conference in London in 2012. And I think when you, and I, in times of COVID, we're all missing that face-to-face -face personal meeting time. Um, mm -hmm. But getting a group of 30 plus people with dementia together in one room is a pretty extraordinary thing 
um, still, actually, and uh, we came away from that event pretty committed to setting up some sort of global alliance. And uh, here we are seven and a half years later from eight people in three countries to people in 49 countries. So it's a pretty amazing um, thing to have done, really. I mean, it, it truly is amazing. And that's why I wanted to start us off there because you started off with these, these, these eight individuals who, who came together and said, we're done waiting for someone else to do something. We're, we are going to do it ourselves. It, it, were you nervous or were you concerned that it would be too big of an undertaking? Like what, what made you feel like you could do this? Um, I guess for me personally, Alex, I, I'm, I suppose I've had a, a fair dose of the social justice genes as my late aunt, um, one of my kind of life mentors who passed away this year, she spent her whole life trying to make the world a better place and she wasn't really recognised for it beyond her own community uh, and she was a remarkable woman um, living till she was 94 and I spent a lot of time with her and my great-grandmother and grandmother when I was young and grew up in a, a relatively difficult, dysfunctional family, but they were like my kind of oasis of, of uh, strength, shall we say, and, and they have been my mentors and, and they always kind of taught me to serve and to do good. And I guess I got annoyed that people with dementia weren't, being served well enough. There were no services for people with dementia other than, you know, a four-week course on how to die from dementia, not how to live with it, and then really no services beyond that pretty much anywhere in the world. And I think you, we've, the world's really changed since then because we used to be either local or state or national centric with our views but when you start to meet people from all around the world and you start to hear that actually it's not better in their country it's not necessarily worse but it's not better either yeah. you always have this illusion that it's better somewhere else but you know that old saying the grass is never greener on the other side so i'd had an, a, an unusual career pathway for somebody of my generation um I had worked in operating theatres and, ironically, um, Adelaide's first dedicated dementia unit was my first job after finishing my nurse's training. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was quite a good thing then. Now I see going into a unit like that as being put in jail for no crime. Um, but that's a whole other issue. So, so I'd worked in dementia care. I worked in operating theatres. I'd had a difficult life experience um, and my... Now, ex-husband also worked in operating theatres, so I thought I'm going to change careers. So I set up a business in hospitality. I'd done a chef's course for fun and had, was in food as a chef and running my own or three businesses for nearly 10 years. Wow. And then I had a health issue, so I had to give that up. I sold those businesses and um, uh, had a couple of years off for health reasons and then somehow ended up in a regional healthcare sales company job, regional manager in a healthcare company. And that's what I was doing when I was uh, diagnosed with young onset dementia. So I was a, 
working full time, a mother of two teenage kids. I was studying on the side, doing a mature age um, double undergraduate degree, Bachelor of Psychology, Bachelor of Arts. I was doing that for fun, not for a new career. Um, and then I got diagnosed with dementia and it was like the next day I had to give up my whole life. And I thought, well, that's not really good enough. Why, why, is, why is it like that? And I think I was floundering for the first couple of years, like most people were. And then I thought, well, I would set up my own services and support. And, and I put on my nurse's hat, what would I have been offered if I'd had a stroke or a brain injury from, say, a road accident? I would have immediately been given rehabilitation and supported to go back to work yeah, in whatever yeah, capacity yeah. I was capable of. Instead with dementia, and it wasn't my doctor that did this, my doctor just diagnosed me, and that's mostly what they do. They don't provide the post-diagnostic support. Care providers do, and advocacy organisations are meant to. But everybody tells you to get your end-of-life affairs in order and to start getting acquainted with aged care and giving up life. So I lost my job when I disclosed dementia. Nobody told me that I had rights as a person with acquired disability. Nobody saw dementia as a condition causing disability back then. So I started to push my healthcare professionals for rehabilitation and then started to see that I could keep living my life, not just give up and wait to die. So there was a lot of things that kind of came together to, for me to want to get involved in and help set up Dementia Alliance International and I became a co-chair maybe six months after it had formed uh, and then um, we changed the kind of process of the board and, and I, I was the chair and the CEO um, and I've stepped down as chair now but I'm still uh, currently the CEO but you know the whole idea is to set up new leaders um, who also live with dementia to keep that organization sustainable. Yeah. So there's, there's two lines of question I'm thinking about right now, but I can only pick one. Um, the, the first is, um, so one of my best friends, um, his mother um, passed from early onset um, Alzheimer's and um, he, he has lived his life a particular way um, since then, because I think it's like 50-50 chance that he could get it. And so he's been very focused on making sure that financially he's okay. So he doesn't end up in one of those, those jails. Um, yeah. Not sure if you could hear the sirens behind me. I did, yeah. <laughs> and... And I guess, you know, we, we, I was talking to him actually last week about it and saying, you know, I haven't heard you mention it in a while. Like, cause we used to talk about it a lot. Um, and I asked him, like, what do you, are, are you okay with that? Are you feeling like confident that you're not going to get it? And he was just like, I kind of accepted it now. And I just kind of want to live my life. Um, and so now we're planning some trips together and stuff. So yeah. um, I guess my question is, what do you, what do you mean by live with, um, living with dementia? What, what, what do you mean by living with dementia? All right, maybe I'll go back a step. So uh, 
what happened to me 13 years ago is still happening to people newly diagnosed with dementia today, no matter what age they are, whether they're 28, and we have members as young as that with, in DAI, um, whether they're 95. They get told to prepare to die, prepare for the end. Um, if I'd had a stroke, I wouldn't have been told that. I would have been supported to keep living my life. So why isn't everybody supported to keep living their life? And, and I guess a, a simple example of what happens is so my aunt, who I talked about earlier, when she needed some in-home help and she didn't need it because of dementia, she just needed it because she was becoming frail, she didn't want somebody, some stranger to come in every day and take her clothes off and shower her. She could do that. It still, it took her longer than it used to, but she could still do that. What she wanted yeah. was for that worker to take her down to her local church where she'd been volunteering for 60 or 70 years to keep volunteering, to keep living her life. And with or without, and in the end, she did have dementia, but she was still quite capable as long as somebody could get her down to church, help her set up her painting classes, she was still teaching people how to paint right up until she was maybe 93. Um, so that, and that's kind of an example of what I mean. So why wasn't I supported, number one, to stay in paid employment, number two, to keep living my own life in whatever way I wanted? And, you know, I was at university and... I said to one of my lecturers, everybody had said to me, you should give up study. It's too stressful for somebody with dementia. And I said, well, that's my hobby. Well, I don't want to give up study. So yeah. uh, I guess it's an advantage of being an older student. I was older or around the same age as most of my lecturers. And I said to one of the psychology lecturers, do you think I should give up? And she said, well, you're only in the early stages of dementia. I can see some of your symptoms but we have a whole disability support team. I'll refer you into there. You'll have a disability advisor set up. Because you're, you, know, you don't have an obvious disability, we'll need a letter from your doctor, your neurologist, confirming your diagnosis. And from then on, the university helped me set up all these strategies for all of the many of them invisible symptoms of dementia. So if I had a son with dyslexia, he wouldn't have been told not to go to school or university. He'd have been provided mm -hmm. with support. Mm -hmm. So one of my first symptoms was an acquired dyslexia. So I was immediately provided with technology and other support for that. Um, and, the, and the university disability support person, because I have primary progressive aphasia and my language back then was quite stilted, she said, have you got a speech pathologist? And I said, nobody's suggested that. And I hadn't thought about it. So she helped me find a speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. And because I engaged a speech pathologist early in my disease process, I was able to learn a lot of strategies mm. to support me to continue to speak. Yeah. But most people with dementia don't kind of have that, I'll call it luck, because I just stumbled across this external support. And, and I think I finished two undergraduate degrees and I finished a Master's of Science in Dementia Care with disability support from my universities. 
why can't the healthcare sector do that for all people with dementia? It's crazy. And the WHO, World Health Organization, has been stating right up front on their information page about dementia that dementia is the leading cause of disability and dependence in older persons worldwide. And yet there's a disconnect between that and what we do for all other disabled people and how healthcare providers and service providers support and manage people with dementia. They help us to die. They don't yet help us to live well. You, that was a bit convoluted. Sorry. No, um, no, you, you, you got me, you got me thinking. And I, I want to ask you, you mentioned something specific. So I have a friend who, um, who was a great speaker. She was a public speaker focused on um, neuropsychology um, and neuroleadership. And so, you know, really focus on the brain. And I actually, it was back in the day, back in the day, I, I, uh, I had, had, had hired her to speak to this group of executives. And literally a month before her time to speak, she, long story short, ended up with bleeding on the brain out of nowhere. And, and I've talked to her about this, like, and it's, it's so interesting because she went from quote unquote being quote unquote normal one day to the next day having a severe disability, um, having to learn how to walk again, how to learn how to talk again. And one of the things that stood out to me um, when we, as we've, we, we've spoken over the years now, she's learned to walk, she's learned to talk again. She, she told me that there's a huge difference between having a more visible disability and one that was invisible because, you know, people would bump her in the, in the subway, not thinking like she barely stay staying up. And so yes. you talked about a, 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 a invisible symptoms. What does it mean? What is it, what, what is it like to have a, uh, an invisible, not invisible, like a, a non-visible disability? And what, if, what should people be thinking about this? Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question because that's something I've been pondering on and writing and speaking about for a long time. So, uh, you know, most countries in the world world now, there is legislation in building design, for example. You must have wheelchair ramps. You must have hearing loops for people with mm-hmm. hearing disabilities. You must have, uh, you know, support for people with visual vision-impaired people. Um, you know, there's support for young mums with pushers. I'm not sure what you call mm-hmm. them in America, but we just call them pushers here. Um, and yet for so even in Australia, even though there has been a program to provide communication access developed by Scope Australia for staff of businesses, staff of organisations, people in the community to learn how to communicate with somebody with a communication speech language impairment I don't know many organisations in the dementia dementia space who've bothered to take up that training. So they advocate. They say they advocate for us. We're in their vision and mission statements. We help them get funding, and yet their staff haven't done communication access training, and it's available. Yeah. So, but their buildings all have wheelchair ramps. So, so people with dementia, we talk about them like cognitive ramps, and. Oh. You know, we wouldn't deny our children disability support for dyslexia, which is pretty invisible as a disability. Mm-hmm. And yet we're 
denying people dementia that sort of support. So, you know, I, I, I was involved in um, a political party here a few years ago, the Dignity for Disability Party, and I was doing some speaking to the people who were going to campaign to, to try and get elected, and I gave a presentation about, you know, being a person with invisible disabilities and, and I do a lot of work with the media, how to handle the media, um, who often say, but you don't look like you've got dementia, which is actually mm-hmm. quite annoying because, you know, people don't look like they've got heart disease either. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's no yeah. sort of special look for people with dementia. And mm-hmm. they had this fabulous guy in a wheelchair and he'd, uh, uh, he'd broken his back at you know, fluke accident at his son's um, football match and a tree had fallen on him and he's been in a wheelchair ever since. And he said to me in conversation, we were just discussing my presentation afterwards in the Q&A, and he said, oh, you know, I have a real problem with people who use disabled toilets and I'll, if the door is locked in a public space, I'll park my wheelchair in the doorway so they can't get out so I can prove they've got disabilities. (laughs) And I said, so would you, how would you approach me who regularly uses disabled toilets? And he said, why do you do that? And I said, because I've got invisible disabilities. I've got incontinence caused from a brain um, surgery and I've got dementia, I get lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he said, I never thought about that. So even people with visible disabilities don't think very much about people with invisible disabilities. And I can remember thinking at uni when I first started accessing some of the disability services, kind of wishing I was in a wheelchair or or had Mm -hmm. a white cane or something because it was easier for people to understand. And what we can't see, we can't understand. It's much harder to understand. You, you know, and you, you, so you also mentioned, you, you talked about um, speaking to this political party. Um, so your organization not only provides um, like educational type tools and whatnot for persons with um, dementia, living with dementia, um, you also advocate on the, their behalf. So, you know, you, you advocate on behalf you know, at the, the local level, the national level, um, the World Health Organization, the UN, you know, I, I, it sounds like that is difficult to break into, to be able to break into and, and advocate at those levels. Can I ask, how how did you go about developing the relationships or how did you even get to the door to be able to ad- advocate for your, your cause at those levels? Do you know, everything happens for a reason, even the bad things. And, uh, you know, I... I tend to go backwards when I talk about things because everything in life prepares you for where you are today. That's my belief. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a dysfunctional family, but that taught me to be resilient. That Mm. taught me to be optimistic in spite of what was happening at home. Um, That taught me that, you know, outside of home, there was a different world out there. Not everybody behaved like that. Um, and then my long-term, first long-term partner took his life when I was 27. And that, you know, 10 years after David died, and, of course, I was bereft and had an awful, awful time afterwards, and then I got involved and ran um, the first uh, 
bereaved through suicide support group in the world in this state. I mean, I ran that for nine and a half years and we provided support for people. But 10 years after David took his life, I saw that as the greatest gift I'd ever been given. And you think, well, how could that be a gift? Well, because it taught me more inner strength and it taught me that every moment is really precious. But it also helped me understand that I needed to do a lot of self-help stuff to overcome some of that baggage from my childhood. So so there's another stepping stone and... And now I've forgotten your exact question. I'm sorry, Alex. Um, no, no worries. It was, you know, how did you, how, how do you break okay, so, circles? Yes. So um, I, I, how I became even a speaker was really an accidental journey. Again, I had started writing as a way of like therapeutic writing when I was diagnosed with dementia. And that was one of the strategies I used when David died was to keep a personal journal and then I started, you know, it became a public blog, but I was meant to be writing an article, a journal, journalistic writing piece for one of my uni courses. And, I, you know, I hadn't long been diagnosed and I could not get this new place, dementia, out of my head. So I said to the lecturer, can I write, instead of writing about visiting another town or a beach or a seaside, can I write about dementia, like this new place that I've, that I've been forced to go to? He said, yeah, why not? I sent it to a friend who was an editor of Disability Magazine and she rang me up, you know, three hours later and she said, well, that's fantastic. I've just cried the last three hours, but can I publish it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she published it and then I got asked to come and speak to a group of nursing home staff. And I was so nervous about speaking, Alex. I had, and I'd lost my licence by then. That's another pitfall of dementia. They take your licence away. Um... I had to have somebody drive me there anyway. So I said to her, I'm just going to print this article off. Would you read it? And then I'll answer some questions. So that's, that was my first speaking gig. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I uh, put my foot in the water and I uh, put in an abstract, some abstracts into the Alzheimer's Disease International Conference in London, not even expecting to get a bit embarrassed about them now because they're pretty hokey. Um, but I got them, you know, they were accepted. We went to London. I met all these other people with dementia and kind of gained a lot more strength. And then we set up DAI. And, and because I'd had a good relationship with Alzheimer's Disease International by then, I was invited as the co-chair of Dementia Alliance International to be a keynote speaker at the World Health Organization's first ministerial conference on dementia. Mm. So I was pretty nervous that day. And I mean, in the WHO's big conference room uh, and sitting next to the director general, who was then Dr. Chan, uh, and, you know, the second in charge of the UK, David Cameron, who was the prime minister, who couldn't be there, so Jeremy, and all these other people. That was pretty nerve-wracking experience, I must say. But there's been like a snowball effect since then and that did open up the doors and, and you know, my speech had been kind of pre-approved uh, and day one of that conference they talked about at the time in 2015 there were 47.5 million people living with dementia. Now they estimate there's at least 52 million um, and there's a new diagnosis somewhere in the world every 3.2 seconds. 
Um, in Australia, it's the leading cause of death for women. But anyway, so, so back to day one of that conference and uh, um, they announced the, the new statistics and then they spent the whole day talking about research for a cure. And I'm sitting there getting more and more annoyed. This is the social justice gene popping up. Going, well, what about the 47.5 million people with dementia? How about improving their care? Yeah. And so at 2 o'clock the next morning, and jet lag helps a lot when you want to change your speech. <laughs> I was up at 2 o'clock and I was annoyed too. So I got up and I completely changed my speech. And I thought, what can they do? Never ask me back. Um, so I changed my speech and I put in kind of three demands. They got called three demands. But they, those three uh, demands made it into the final action plan at the end of that conference. And that was that research didn't only focus on a cure but also focused on care, that dementia is not just seen as a condition-causing disability but managed as one uh, and that uh, people should be receiving rehabilitation for dementia. And, I'm, you know, advocacy is slow, campaigning is slow. Sometimes you think you're never, ever going to achieve anything. And I'm currently on uh, three technical groups with the WHO now specifically on rehabilitation for people with dementia, improving the path, post-diagnostic pathway for people with dementia. So there is some little, little tiny snippets of change, but I couldn't see anything changing in my local community. So then I kind of ended up in the national space. I still couldn't see any change, lots of rhetoric, not much change. So then I, you know, had this opportunity to get to meet people at the WHO and then the UN, and so I will use it. You know, they're they're people just like you and me, um, and they've been it's been an incredible journey, really, one that I would never ever have predicted, of course. Thank you for tuning in to the Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code podcastfamily on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year-round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA group term life insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAE. PA.org today. 
And now back to The Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. And, and I feel like, and I feel like it's, I, I'm, I'm always talking about this. So anyone who's listening right now, if you, if you look, if you listen to any of the other episodes, you'll probably hear me say something like this or tied to this. It's all because you took action. Um, yes. You didn't, you didn't just wait around and say, oh, woe is me. Someone needs to come help me. You mm-hmm. took action and every action you made, even from the, the small action of just saying, hey, we're going to create something. We're going to start something. Or the small action of, hey, can I write this about this topic versus another topic? Like everything that has happened and you've been able to accomplish has been because you've done something, not just waited around. You can't wait around because if you do, it'll never happen. That, that's kind of my motto. And, and where I grew up was in a remote farming community on a farm, 5,000-acre farm, and... You know, when I was little, we didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. And we had to make do and compromise and, and just get on with life. You know, the five, getting up at 5 a.m. started very young for me because we had to get up and do a couple of hours of farm jobs or chores before we caught the bus at 7 a.m. So, that, you know, they were long days as kids. But that taught me to be action-oriented, you know, we didn't have running water on the farm. We were four miles off of the mains water. The council refused to do it. So we spent a whole summer holidays, the four kids on the farm, digging the trench <laughs> to put the pipe in so that we could have water to the farm and didn't have to rely on rainwater. So I, I think I had good training for being action-oriented. But, you know, you know, I became a, a, a registered nurse and worked in dementia and then operating theatres and it's easy well that was a fantastic I loved that career but again it was you know someone comes through an operating door and their aorta's been um, damaged or they've broken their leg it's action so I've kind of always had um, I've been in careers where where you've had to act quickly often Um, and I you know I think in this dementia space if we don't act on changing it, then it won't change because there's too many people without dementia currently making all of the decisions for people with dementia. Yes, yes. And that has to change. So um, I, I, there are two questions that, one kind of a personal question and then a two is another question. I should probably ask the other one, so not focus on me. So I'll ask the other one first. So <laughs> how, how do you go about... Um, like you said, I think when people, I've, my understanding is that when people find out they have dementia or they're going to either have it or they're going to get it, I guess, um, there could be this, like you said, for two years, a couple of years, you kind of kind of just had to find yourself. Like you were just kind of going through it, right? Um, what do you say now to encourage those individuals who are just diagnosed with it? What do you say to them to, to know, let them know that life isn't over? I think I've often had people ask me, you know, if there's one piece of advice you can give someone who's newly diagnosed with dementia, I guess maybe the, and it's probably the hardest thing to do or to achieve, but it's to demand your pre-diagnosis life. Don't let people take that away just because you've got dementia. 
There is legislation, communities, governments, organisations are legally obliged to provide us with support to keep living. So, yes, it, dementia is a terminal progressive chronic illness. There is probably 150 or more types of dementia, dementia being like an umbrella term, like the word car or fruit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my type of dementia, when I was first diagnosed, I was told I had nine to 10 years to live. Well, that's 13 years ago. Um, there are some types of dementia um, more more often the genetically um, passed on ones that are quite aggressive and a prognosis could be four to five years. And, you know, people respond differently to a terminal illness, being told they've got one. Um, I, I say get your end-of-life affairs in order when you are old enough to vote. Get that out of the way. Mm, so that mm, when mm. tough stuff comes up in your life, and it will, whether yeah. it's health, whether it's divorce, whether it's, you know, losing a child, tough stuff happens. Get the tough stuff done early when there's not so much emotional yeah. stuff in the way of it. And then you can focus on living. So some people with a terminal illness will go, right, I'm going to hit the bucket list. That's okay if that's what somebody wants to do. I don't really have a bucket list. I've, you know, I've, I'm, I'm happy with my life. I'm, there's nothing really that I'd want to do now that would make me extra happy before I die. And, <laughs> you know, the one thing that is for sure is we were all born with a death sentence. You're going to die. I'm going to die. So why get hung up about when that might be because you might be just sitting home reading a book and drop dead. Absolutely. It might be from dementia. It might be from cancer. It might be a plane crash. You know, none of us know. And so, you know, I live on a a motto and Wayne Dyer, the late Wayne Dyer, was one of the people I kind of read and listened to uh, after David died that he really his teachings really helped me get through that. And it was like live today as if it's your last just in case it is. So um, we don't know what tomorrow brings, so to make the most of today, and that, that is kind of a life motto for me now. But I think my grandparents and my aunt always kind of lived that way as well. So um, and I think... Living to serve others is really important too. Um, so I, now I'm going to ask you my selfish question. Um, so a, a couple times now, as you, as you were speaking, I had to keep myself from tearing up because um, my grandfather, who I was really, 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 really close with, um, died last year in 2019. Um, uh, uh, COVID due to COVID and um sorry oh th- thank you it was it was a rough time it was a, you know I never shared I actually funny enough I didn't share it via Facebook I didn't share it online um because I just I told my wife I just I kind of didn't want everyone to reach out to me like I mm-hmm. didn't because then every time someone would reach out to me and ask me about it I would have to relive it every single time so I've never shared this publicly yet I just it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't. Um, so I kind of kept it and dealt with it. But um, what, what, you make me think because in, in the last, 
you know, months before, you know, he, he ultimately passed, um, he started, uh, I was, my auntie told me that he started having um, bits of dementia that they said it was coming. And um, I, I, the last time, oh my God, last time I was out there um, visiting him, um, like uh, we, we were talking and he didn't always eat his food. And so I was trying to encourage him and making jokes with him, trying to get him to eat his food. And then he did, he gave me this look of anger and disgust that we're close. And he, he's been mad at me many times at life in life and it's okay. You know, we, we, we always knew it was just, you know, us joking around. Um, but this is the first time I actually felt like, like that was, it felt serious. And it, and it took me from, it took me back. Like I, I was like, I was worried, like what even to do? Like, and my, my auntie, lucky or not, I guess she, she pulled up like a few minutes after that. And I told her what happened. She's like, yeah, this has been happening every so often. And I guess I'm not sure what the question is here, but I, I saw it from my perspective, like, oh my God, I, I lost, I'm going to lose my grandfather. Someone I love so much. Um, but I guess I never thought about it from his side too, you know, you know, maybe going in and out is, I, I don't, I really don't have a question, but I, I guess I, I felt maybe, maybe I should have been not as focused on how I felt in that situation, but more so thinking about how he must be feeling going in and out like that. Yeah, is, is that, what, what are you? Um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I think that it, it also comes back to, you know, a discussion before, before we started recording this as an interview was about not, calling me a sufferer of dementia, even though sometimes I suffer from some of the symptoms or the changes forced on me by dementia. I didn't choose dementia. For some reason, it chose me, uh, and that's becoming clearer to me now why. But um, one of our co-founders who lives in America John Sandblom, he wrote, he doesn't blog these days, but he had started blogging. And, and we were in Puerto Rico for our first official Dementia Alliance International Conference attending in, as an organisation, um, attending the ADI International Conference in Puerto Rico. And John wrote something that I thought was quite profound afterwards. Um, and he talked about enabling us by supporting our disabilities. But the, the line is something like, we are changing in ways, everyone's changing, but people with dementia are changing in ways that you're not. And, you know, from your grandpa's perspective, if he did have dementia or if he just had age-related memory loss, and, and so you, like, just like our skin ages and our eyesight ages and so does our uh, cognitive functioning and memory, so less than 50% of people over the age of 85 will have dementia, but they may have some age-related changes that's a normal part of ageing. But imagine, and I can imagine because it's happened to me, so I had a near photographic memory and the kids used to call me, like, you know, the walking telephone book, Mum, what's that number? Who's that? Where, what's that address? You know, and I just knew it all. If I heard it once or read it once, I remembered it. Yeah. And I miss my photographic memory a lot. And I've still got memory but the photographic bit's gone. And I had a very deep knowledge of classical music, which is gone. And when that 
kind of when I became aware that the canvas of my musical landscape or knowledge or whatever you want to call it had pretty much disappeared. I can't tell the difference now between Mozart and Mahler. You know, that's profoundly different types of music. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I cried for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so, you know, if I'd been, uh, somebody had been with me and I'd got cranky at them trying to make me eat <laughs> or trying to make me have a shower or whatever, but I was absorbed in, in having lost my musical memory, then it's hard for you to see that it might not be you it might not be anything to do with the food or the environment, but it's due to having to cope with losses and the losses that people with dementia and older people experience as they age with and without dementia is not given enough recognition. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been a family carer for two family members and, and a young friend who had to go into a nursing home when he was 54 with vascular dementia and died there when he was 57. And I, I would be a care partner very differently now with the knowledge I've got as the person with dementia um, because, you know, if you look in the literature or you look in books written about dementia, there's all this stuff about the grief of family members what about my grief? Yeah, yeah. So all this stuff that's happening to people with dementia, which might cause them to be angry or cranky or, you know, whatever. It's not necessarily the pathology of dementia doing that. It's just that their inner needs haven't been met and they're changing and they're losing stuff. So, you know, it's a profound experience for everyone. Um but I think that the voices of people with dementia, hopefully as the movement of people with dementia grows, and it is, it's a huge movement now, um, people are becoming much braver about speaking out, but also like sharing stories is how we can help change the world, I think. Um, and I think we're... we're showing the world that we can still live really productive and meaningful lives in spite of having dementia. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, uh, I hope that hasn't made you more sad. No, um, I, I, I really appreciate what you shared. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it's so insightful. And, and like you said, like, um, man, like you said, you know, at, Though we, the people not going through the dementia, may be feeling a particular type of way, we really do need to be thinking about the person who's actually going through it. And, oh my God, it's, again, it's, it sounds so obvious, um, but I think, but, it's, but it's, it sounds obvious, right? They're going through it. They, <laughs> they're the ones actually going through it. Um, but I think it's so easy just to think about ourselves and our own feelings um, and I just appreciate you sharing everything you just did. And I, and I want to, I want I know we're running up against time, um, but I'd like to open it back up to you. Is, is there any last, you know, thoughts, ideas, is just anything that you'd like to share with everyone listening and watching today? Um, I think that, 
you know, one of the questions that you had said to me or in the list that you sent me, what what advice would I give to someone hoping to reach uh, a leadership position? And, you know, I think the biggest thing that leaders need to do, even on the pathway to becoming leaders, and I think everyone's a leader, by the way. Um, they're leading their own lives in the way that they want. That's being a leader, surely. Um, but I think learn, learn, learn about the industry that you want to work in. Um, learn about the people in your teams, not about what they can do for their job, but how you can support them as human beings. What you can do for them is really important in building teams. And I think that, and certainly growing up, on a, in a poor farming community is you may not have, uh, you know, the nature-nurture argument. You may not have innate resilience or optimism, but you can learn to be resilient and you can learn to be optimistic. And, you know, I use this uh, in my own mind if I'm having a bad day, and I do have bad days, um, you know, I get the old-fashioned set of scales that my grandma used in the kitchen. So you had the weights on one side and you put the, the flour or butter or whatever on the other side and I'd go good day bad day it is a choice which one am I going to choose yeah and every now and then I need a bad day and I will indulge in what I um, uh, lovingly call plum disease which stands for poor little old me <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to stay there because it's just a you know, who wants to stay there all the time? And, you know, if you look around your community and the people that you know, positive people tend to hang out with positive people. Mm -hmm. And I don't hang out with people who aren't willing to be more positive about their situation a lot in my personal circle, whereas once I would have, once I would have tried to help every person on the planet, we can't do mm -hmm. that. Um, and you have to help yourself first. And sometimes teaching yourself to be positive and resilient and optimistic is as much as you can do to get through your life and your day. Um, but certainly in leadership roles, I, I think that um, probably the best thing I ever do is to get to know people as human beings. And that's in a workplace, out of a workplace. You know, if you're sitting on a train or a bus, get to know the person next to you. Every single person is going through something, um, whether it's their son just died, whether it's their cat just died, whether it's, I don't know, COVID. Um, at the moment, everybody's stressed. And I, I think that, um, I don't know, I, I would just like the world to be really kind to each other. And there's a lot of statistical data coming out about kindness now and the statistical impact of kindness uh, on heart disease is the same significance as giving up smoking. That's pretty amazing. So, you know, yeah, it's amazing. The, the kindness data coming out about kindness, which actually is free. Kindness is free. We don't need to spend millions on interventions in a workplace um, or interventions in a nursing home, we can just all be kind and it'll be a whole lot better place for all of us. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's probably just me as a human being rather than me as a leader. Um, and sometimes I, I'm not sure that I am a leader in the true sense of the word. I don't always like 
leading because sometimes you have to make tough decisions about things and then you, you're the one that has to bear the brunt of passing on tough decisions sometimes. So that's not fun, but if you want something enough or you want to change a situation, and I really want to change what happens for people newly diagnosed with dementia so that if next year you were diagnosed with young onset dementia, you wouldn't just get told to give up your life yeah. and get ready to die. That's really important because I know that it wouldn't happen if you had a stroke next year. Kate, this time with you have, has been amazing. Um, so I've learned so much and, you know, again, uh, I, I know we got to wrap it up, um, but I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, you not only taught life skills, you taught leadership skills. Um, and I, I loved your, your last thought on just being kind. Um, I mean, we really truly never know what someone's going through, you know, regardless of how much money they you they got or whatever their Facebook, Instagram pages, pages look like, it does not matter. You have no idea. We have no idea what someone else is going through. So just be kind. Um, thank you so much for that. Look, uh, we're going to wrap up now, but everyone, if you found value in what was shared today, you know what I'm going to say. Don't just look back, reach back. If you know of anyone who would benefit of from hearing what you heard today who you, that you just said to yourself right now that you found value in what you heard then you need to make sure they listen to this episode today send you know, send it to them today text it to them whatever you got to do make sure they hear it because it's it's it's, it's the stories you know what Kate said you know the, the, it's our stories that can change the world and so we need to make sure we're pushing this story out to as many people as possible so we can make and impact change across this world. And we don't have to have persons with persons with with dementia don't have to have to be told that the first thing to do is just just prepare to die. And, and that and that's that's absolutely horrible. So I'll I'll, I'll end there. Who for, for anyone who wants to read a bit more of my personal story about dementia, my first book, What the Hell Happened to My Brain. Uh, Living Beyond Dementia is, I think it's still available, at least on Kindle. I'm not sure about hard copy. It's a bit harder to get in hard copy now. Um, but uh, that was kind of where I started in terms of uh, more public writing, I guess. Mm. Well, everyone get the book. <laughs> no ifs, ands, buts about it. Get the book today. Um, Kate, if you don't see a thousand downloads um, within the next month from now, you contact me and we are going to come back on this podcast <laughs> And we're going to make sure everyone hears this again. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us again. Everyone, as always, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. So, Painless? Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.